Dave. Well, hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is... David Hesmondalsh. Dave, it's great to see you bearded. Great to see you, Toby. It's been a while since we've seen one another. When did the beard emerge? A lot of beards emerged during lockdown. It was pre-lockdown. I was ahead of the curve, I'd like to think. (laughs) Hipster. Hipster dude. No, I was too late for hipster. I was in that intermediate zone of growing a beard between between hipster and lockdown. A kind of <laughs> a kind of nowhere zone, really. I'm sure you made it your own zone. So, Dave, tell me what's on your mind uh, these days. What's preoccupying you, interesting you, animating you? In terms of my academic research, I've been thinking about music, culture and technology a lot. That's been my main preoccupation uh, in recent years. I'm working with a team, a lovely team of people, um, three postdocs and a Chinese co-investigator on a project that's called Music Culture in the Age of Streaming. And I think the project is has emerged from my dissatisfaction with what I think of as a shift in cultural studies, media studies, in a, a, a group of fields that I work in, and I think that you work in too, really, Toby. A, a shift, uh, as I see it, towards a preoccupation with technology at the expense of culture, at the intellectual expense of culture. Um, that's not at all to say that I'm uninterested in technology or that I think it's unimportant of course I don't think that but I think I I wanted to be involved in a bit of a rebalancing so by taking what is ultimately a set of technological developments which is about how music production consumption music experience in modern societies is increasingly centered on music streaming platforms uh, taking that and trying to look at the cultural implications of that you know that that that, that's the move i'm involved in at the moment and what are some of those cultural implications i mean i know you haven't finished the research but up to this point what do you see as being some of the crucial ones i think what i want to do is dethrone the notion of the platform a little bit from its uh royal position in 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 people's thinking about um culture, technology, uh, media at the moment. And music is an interesting case study for doing that because platformization, that widely used term, um, which we can discuss and try and define, platformization hit music before it hit any other major cultural form. And my hunch is that people live with music in ways that are not hugely dissimilar from how they've been living with music over many decades. That's not to say, of course, there haven't been changes, transformations, and interesting developments. Um, But sometimes when you start probing those developments, they turn out to be a little bit less transformative than before. So amongst other things, we've 
been asking people to keep diaries, including audio diaries, where they just record what they've been doing into a into whatever device is available to them. Um, and we're doing that. Uh, we've done that in both uh, the UK and China. So I think it's going to be very, very interesting for me to um, read <laughs> the transcripts of people's reflections on how how they live with music on a daily basis in China. Um, and so to circle back to the question you were asking, I think it's about not allowing concepts such as platform and other concepts such as infrastructure to distract us from the um, the complexity and strangeness of people's everyday lives with music and with culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess, uh, as you say, music was the first frontier of the cultural industries to feel the effects of the internet because in many cases it required small files that were relatively easy to transport by contrast with things that included lots of vision and were very long files, yeah? And it was, in a sense, a, a pioneer. But you could argue, as I think is the spirit of your point, that this has been the case for many, many years, because if you go back to folkloric traditions of sharing music or Victorian families grouped around the piano or church choirs, all sorts of different formations. You see the sharing in the informal sector, uh, the amateur sector, the everyday sector of music in ways that, of course, applied to things like drama and literature, but not to the same extent, uh, particularly drama and documentaries and other screen genres, it seems to me. And I, I, I take it that's your point, that there is this element of people making do with music either as performers or as audience members or as both, in ways that are sustained across technological developments, although they may also have some changes? Yeah, that's right. The, the, the way you talk about it there definitely accords with, with my own view. Um, and I think uh, the newness, which it is important to talk about, um, matters. So let's not put that aside too much. Uh, but even ideas such as abundance and personalization, you know, those are those are two terms that people would use to try and understand what's different now. And there's no doubt that we have this if we have access to streaming services, and of course not everybody does, but but many people do, at least in, in wealthier societies you have access to you know an extraordinary range of music and that um that matters and i think it is the case that people often experience that music in what we might call individualized ways i think that's as much to do with the use of headphones as it is streaming services but then streaming services and maybe it's worth us talking a little bit about what what those terms even mean streaming platforms streaming mm. services mm -hmm. but as is well known they offer uh, certain forms of automated recommendation that guide you on mm. certain 
journeys that are arguably distinct from what somebody living in the same residence as you or, or people you know might be, be taking through it. So, you know, there's abundance and individualization going on. Um, but I think it's possible to overinterpret that. A, a lot of what I'm interested in, and I've always been interested in this, is people's ordinary everyday critiques of new things. Um, and of course, what you get amongst critical intellectuals is when a new technology comes along and seems to almost be taking over, a set of anxieties uh, come out many of which are expressions of genuine political conviction. You know, they, they, they represent concerns about the direction of music, the direction of culture, the direction of the world. And that, that's obviously something that uh, we should welcome. And ordinary uh, people who don't write books for a living or don't teach for a living also have their versions of those concerns uh, and I think they, they're often somewhat different um, but there are overlaps so I'm really really interested in that kind of uh, in, in, in that set of beliefs and, and, uh, and criticisms that, that all kinds of people make and what seems to me to happen is that you get another form of continuity which is ways of thinking and talking that curiously echo how people talked about things not being very good 50 years ago before the invention of streaming. So not that long ago, I published a piece in a journal called Cultural Sociology that was uh, about that um, music's effects on, sorry, uh, streaming's effects on music culture, uh, old anxieties and new simplifications where uh, with, uh, without wanting to be superior, I really don't intend that intervention as an effort to belittle people's um, desires to make sense of these new developments. But I think the, for me, it's a way of trying to contribute to the conversation by maybe sharpening the critique a little bit by uh, not being distracted by things that may ultimately not matter that much and trying to get to the core of what the problem is. Um, and that means working through the, the criticisms that people make, I think. So that's part of the method, I suppose. It's to kind of compile what journalists and bloggers and so on have written and, and try to understand what's going on beneath their criticisms and um, and sometimes you think well that just really it, in some cases you think well that's not really happening you know that that that's or or there are these myths that go around uh, or there, there may be something there but you think well is that really a problem so an example of that would be a story that you might hear. I, I don't know how often you use music streaming platforms, Toby, but you know, there's this idea that it goes around uh, uh, and you hear a lot when people have conversations about music streaming platforms, which is that because the payments only happen if you are, uh, the track is played for 30 seconds or more, that uh, the 
musicians are having to change what they're doing and so they're having to get musical ideas more quickly into the first 30 seconds of the track and that somehow this is going to uh, make music bad in general that musicians are going to abandon the idea of I don't know a one minute 30 second uh, solo opening up the track in favour of um, you know hitting the listeners with a hook in the in the first 10 to 15 seconds and of course if you look at what happened with the three minute pop single in the 50s 60s 70s when radio was the dominant way in which people discovered music uh, of course people were musicians were in many cases trying to make the record as immediately accessible as possible and it produced a lot of music that the very people who were making the criticisms of this supposed new development in streaming love and revere so you know it's that, it's that kind of um as i see it that confusion uh, that some people would call it an inheritance of mass culture criticism you know that term that uh, i don't hear used that much but it was very it was very widely used that term when i um was doing my phd in the 1990s to refer to a certain kind of simplified mid 20th century view that popular culture was uh, was terrible uh, and uh, everything was going to hell in a handcart um, but it often depended on a set of simplifications and assumptions including assumptions about a popular taste and um, and people's everyday habits so the critiques of mass culture criticism that were pervasive in cultural studies uh, when I was doing my PhD in the 1990s, it seems to me that we see some of those mass culture criticism tropes occurring again in the age of streaming. But just to finish this long rambling uh, <laughs> uh, 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 answer. Does Jack Walker calling on you for the wind up? He's saying, I've only got, a, I've only got a five quid left, Dave. Uh, you're going to have to gloss who Jack Walker is, Toby. <laughs> but just to fin finish that, that train of thought, um, this is absolutely not about letting go of critique. It's trying to uh, horn critique. Yeah, sure. I mean, what I was thinking, Jack Walker was a British industrialist <laughs> who endowed the team in uh, the English Football League that Dave follows that goes by the name of Blackburn Rovers, now owned by Venkis a South Asian uh, chicken company. So the, what I was thinking about when you were talking... Toby, with... I, would, I would like to take two minutes to reflect on the tragedy of Blackburn Rovers later, but not, not now. Well, what's going to happen, Dave, is that we'll keep talking for a while and then I'll say to you, I've got two questions uh, I'd like to ask you. And then after that, please add anything you'd like to. And that could be Ode to Jack, Ode to Venkis, or whatever is necessary. A lot of people will be like, I'm not sticking around for this. This, this, this guy's just going <laughs> to talk about English soccer, but please stick around. It, it, it's, it's good stuff. It's It'll about, be worth it. It's about class. It's about locality. It's about um, 
of everyday popular culture and it's about um post-brexit britain what i was thinking about when you were talking and you stimulated lots of thoughts was the radio adding to mobility of music mobility of listening to music and the way in which on the one hand um people would be all over town and particularly at sporting events and so on and at the beach with a little radio plug in their ear attached to their radio listening in mono no one talked about this being something that alienated them from the people around them but what people did talk about was the idea that you mentioned namely the artificiality and the uh, industrial dumbing down occasions by the top 40 but now magically as you say much of the music and one thinks of the beatles as the obvious example that derived from precisely that domain is valorized as some sort of art uh whereas the no more curated domain of the algorithm is denounced and i think that that's absolutely an example of this repetition that you mentioned and i think this is a big problem with the uh, absence of history from the way in which communications technologies are discussed and not only in the popular realm but academically as well and we're very fortunate that we have people like you who can attend to that oh well thanks toby but yeah the alg- algorithm that word is definitely central to some of the efforts to understand what's going on that sometimes get diverted into simplifications and misunderstandings. And um, Nick Seaver, an anthropologist from Tufts in um, in Greater Boston, Tufts University, he's written a, an important book about the, the culture of the engineers who create algorithms that complicate some of the those simplifications. I think there are other ways of of digging deeper into what's going on with what you might call automated recommendation too, which is simply to understand that many people don't seem to be very influenced by, by the recommended, uh, the recommendations that they receive automated or otherwise. Um, Now that's not to say that there isn't some sort of shaping of what people listen to through the platforms, but the platforms are just, one of the means by which people come to music. Um, and so that's one of the things we're trying to investigate is what, what are the journeys that people make and how, be, how do people organise their musical listening? And it, it seemed the, the diaries that we've organised aren't, you know, it's not like a survey, it's not like a quantitative study, though there is some interesting quantitative material out about people's listening to playlists and so on. But what you see a lot is people just every time they hear something on TikTok or whatever, they add to just to some huge list um, because not everybody's an, a music nerd like me who organizes my playlists into, you know, new music, October 2023, old music, uh, October 2023. You know, uh, it, it's just a kind of chaotic list that goes round and round in a big circle. And we're automated recommendation apparently seems to play quite a small part in what people do so you know what do we make of that i'm not sure we're still writing that up um but one thing i wanted to say was that i I think it would be 
better to I think my 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 hunch is that we need to bring the critique down from this kind of heroic streaming is evil level algorithms are this um, sinister force and think of music streaming as something more akin to supermarkets where it's kind of extremely it now occupies this very ordinary place in people's lives it's extremely convenient for people to use music streaming platforms um, and it's also relatively cheap i understand that it's out of the reach of um, many many people uh, in the current cost of living crisis world but historically it's extremely cheap um, to pay 10 pounds or it's a little bit more now 12 pounds 12 dollars or whatever 12 euros and get a great deal of the music that's been produced in the world over recent times so supermarkets are like that they're extremely convenient they're cheap they're they're almost habitual um and and here's the thing to uh, f to find alternative ways in which music is presented to you you have to go out of your way to get there so the example of an alternative to the big music streaming platforms such as spotify apple music and so on the example that's often given is Bandcamp, which isn't really a platform. It's you know a means by which people can buy vinyl records, merch and uh, merchandise, T-shirts and so on, and and download. Um, and a lot more of the money goes to the artists, so it's considered more ethical. And you know the equivalent would probably be something like farmers markets or something like that, where you know you go, it's nicer and hopefully more of the money is going to producers there isn't this system that uh, funnels the music to uh, uh, sorry the profit the money essentially to corporations and to the lucky superstars who are at the top of the uh, musician pile um, but it's an effort to do it so you know I'm thinking at the moment along the lines of using food um, food and drink which is mainly what supermarkets do they do much more as well of course I'm try trying to think about that as an analogy for understanding the power of platforms in the realm of culture in this less heroic way in this less, less in this more ordinary way grounded in, in, in people's experience Dave, you've used the word platform and platformization as another word a bit, and you said you are a bit dubious about these concepts. So I wonder if you could explain what is meant by them, but also what would, what should be meant by them or whether they should be a different set of terms. I think we have to work with the platform concept now, or those of us who work in uh, trying to understand how media and culture operate at the moment uh, you know there's a necessity for those terms they're not going to go away they need understanding and i think some some of what's driven me over the last few years is a sense that those terms terms such as platform and infrastructure were being used in very vague ways and ways that often had a 
an effect about them, a, a feeling that people are using them to say, I have expertise in this area that has a, 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 a mystery about it and often rather poor explanations of what the concepts were actually meant to be referring to. And of course, we're all familiar with academics trying to sound clever or trying to um, gain some professional advantage by using fashionable concepts. And I understand why people are driven to, to do that. And, and no doubt I've been guilty of that many times myself in my career. But I, I, I came to be very dissatisfied with how those terms were being used. And even though my inclination is actually to, uh, to, to go for cultural concepts, I thought, well, I, I really need to start paying very close attention to those concepts and to how people are using them and misusing them. Uh, uh, so a, a platform really, a digital platform, and there's lots of really good writing about about them, but at the core of it is the idea that they offer a means of exchange. So they operate a little bit like markets, but they operate within certain digital domains. And I think a really key thing is to see them as the end of a certain dream of what internet, the internet could be in that the original um, designers of the internet uh, and, and, and the web had a set of principles that were actually, you might say they were noble. They were about openness. Um, they involved creating technologies that would allow people to do different things with um, with what was there um, based on things such as the end-to-end -end principle um, and layering and so on and without going too deep into that, that the, those kind of technical issues I think what happened was that that produced a certain amount of chaos and we first saw that chaos in business terms in the music industries around the turn of the century and so music also became a domain in which there was an attempt to close down that openness that chaotic openness mm -hmm. that the original principles of internet architecture made possible and platforms were the means to do that, do that. so they effectively create what some people call walled gardens and so uh, some of what we've been doing really is trying to, and obviously we've been building on the work of other people in doing, doing this, but in fact, I think it's become a neglected story, strangely. Um, how, did, how did we get from that chaos to this very ordered, very convenient mm -hmm. supermarket-like world? Well, yeah. and, 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 and there's also a very interesting and somewhat different version of that happening in China, uh, which my, uh, my colleague Mabu Songwai Li um, is working on and, and we're working on together. So, um, so yeah, platforms as a kind of 
closing down of the possibilities of internet infrastructure, mm. I think, is a key a key way of uh, looking at it. As with the entire history of the internet, the history of radio predicts everything and always has done. Uh, with the sealed set putting paid to the Brechtian and trade union models in Germany and Australia, and the uh, unlike in in more repressive societies like the UK. Uh, in these places that had thousands of commercial radio stations vying for space in the spectrum, eventually along comes a set of interests, state and commercial and military, that basically set things in place. And those of us who know that history have been able to predict almost everything that's happened with the internet. But yeah, Toby, I, I was, I was, uh, um, as I was thinking about our conversation today, I remembered that you and I. You very kindly um, did a podcast with me 10 years ago. Yeah. So I, I went back and listened to it. And uh, I was a bit alarmed when, you know, on the cover page for the podcast, um, it, it said something like David Hesmondel's talks about music, technology and culture and the cultural industries. And I was like, oh, my <laughs> God, I'm still I was talking about the same things then that I was. I'm, talk, I'm thinking about now. I, I, I haven't moved on at all. Um, <laughs> but we also talked about things like the terrible British pop band Kajigugu as well. Uh, uh, and uh, and now you're a backup but, singer to Niall Rogers. Uh, 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 okay, well, there's another connection there. But I, I was struck on listening to that, that podcast from 2013 which took place in a very nice cocktail bar in Clerkenwell. Uh, I see this as a, another symbol of a certain decline in my life that I'm now <laughs> stood in my my office at home uh, instead of being uh, receiving your kind hospitality in some glamorous <laughs> location in East London. Um, but but yeah, we talked about radio quite a lot, and and I think it's such a salutary thing to do is to um, start almost change the question from you know how are platforms changing music to um, uh, how if we make radio central to the story of music over the last 50 years and look at its resilience what does that tell us about music and then make platforms subservient to those lasting technologies instead of doing what i think it's very understandable for people to do which is to say what's the new thing and give me a grant to um to to understand this new thing which is precisely what i did because i did manage to get get uh, some nice grant money for this project but then what I've tried to do is turn it on its head and almost mm. undermine that very move that, mm. <laughs> that persuaded the grant givers in the first place now going back to your passing and to listeners possibly mysterious reference to Nile Rogers um, I who's, think another th whom you're not a backing singer but who is your musical director uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, there wasn't really much musical harmony between me and Niall when we met last week. But this is another really strange connection between our conversation 10 years ago, which I, I think is still available online, that podcast, isn't it? Well, it must be because I listened to it last night. Um, and um, and uh, yeah, the, a really strange connection between those two things is that 
I think that I've only ever been to the Houses of Parliament in London three times um, in my life. And um, the first one was the day that I was interviewed by you for that earlier podcast when I was going to meet Lord David Putnam, an interesting kind of former film producer. Um, uh, who I was interviewing for a research project on New Labour's cultural policies back then. And then, yeah, here we are again, 10 years later, and uh, <laughs> and I've just been to the House of Parliament again. It's like you, you somehow make that happen. And what happened was that last week I was invited to, to uh, the House of Commons to give evidence to a select committee, as they're called. These are the com parliamentary committees that oversee the work of government departments. So this committee oversees the work of the uh, departments of culture, media and sport. And they, that committee has done some very interesting work on uh, music streaming. Um, and a lot of their work has actually reproduced some of the problematic criticisms that people uh, understandably make of, of of streaming but they also pointed to some real issues and it's produced all this knowledge and, and, and all this um, research that gives us so much more information than we had about uh, where the money goes in the contemporary music industries in, in the age of streaming but anyway the point of that this story is that the, they'd also invited the legendary and and brilliant musician Nile Rogers of the band Chic uh, to give evidence as, as well. But uh, Nile's role really was to try and persuade policymakers to make uh, the uh, song rights more valuable, uh, the, the rights accorded to compositions, because he's involved with his manager, Mert Mercuriadis, in this kind of finance capitalist venture to uh, buy up catalogues of music. <laughs> uh, but the way that Nile Rogers pre presented the case for making song rights more valuable, and I'm simplifying a little bit what was going on, was to say that music is absolutely wonderful and it, it, it touches people's lives deeply. Um, and so, uh, I, there was this kind of, you know, and he spoke a lot, did Nile Rogers. There was this kind of extraordinary, it was kind of like a, a circus, really, um, uh, and where Nile would talk for a long time about the magic of music. And then an MP would say to me and my colleague, uh, Hyo Jung Sun, my collaborator and colleague, uh, um, uh, so what do you think about that? You've got a sentence. <laughs> Fantastic. So, yeah, there, in fact, there were more, to use the a sort of enemy melody maker expression from the 70s, there were musical differences <laughs> rather than harmonies. He was extremely charming and so was his manager, yeah. Merck, in yeah. the way that yeah. uh, ex, uh, very rich people can be. <laughs> so, Dave, we've got about 10 minutes left. And I said that I had two questions. One of them was about, you know, bringing the band back together with Nile Rodgers. <laughs> We've already done that. But my other one, before throwing to you for the pay-in to Jack, is about the labour process. Because although you've mostly been talking about the culture of music as something listened to, you've also 
mentioned people who are musicians and working stiffs, not just in the fictive capital world of Mr. Rogers, but actually the people who make this stuff and who seem, from what I can tell as a non-expert, to have a case in terms of feeling ripped off by the way that Spotify et al. operate. So I wondered if you could talk a bit about that labour process and maybe set us to rights, if you can, about this question of there being a mass exploitation of music workers under current arrangements. There's no doubt that more musicians earn money from recorded music than they've ever done before. That's the simple reality of the platform world where it's easy for people to upload their music. Most people don't earn very much at all from that. And so that has become the basis of a set of judgments about platforms. And I think there's a contradiction there. The contradiction is that it's kind of naive to assume that the literally millions of musicians who put music on there or who have their music put onto platforms would be able to earn enough money from recorded music unless we, the consumers, all paid vast amounts more or that, you know, there was huge government intervention to to shore up the the business. And yet, this is a contradiction. It's great that people are taking the conditions of musicians more seriously. Uh, I would say it it started about 10 to 15 years ago. It's almost as if the digital crisis made people more sympathetic to musicians than they have been in the previous generation. Though I think it was also something of a cultural shift. I, I, I think of it as a kind of almost a rock and roll myth that m- music should be made. But it goes back to romanticism and and, and, um, and modernism. You know, the idea that making culture should be some sort of sacrifice, sacrificial labour, as Andrew Ross calls it in one of his, his brilliant essays. And so you know, we've seen these sets of rising demands for cultural workers, which I think is enormously positive. I've been interested in cultural work since, you know, the late 90s. Uh, and, uh, you know, I wrote a book about it with Sarah Baker in 2010 called Creative Labour. Um, and I think over that 25 year period, and, and not because of my interventions, by the way, but we've seen this rising concern for for cultural workers, which is, is, is enormously positive. Um, so are streaming services exploitative? Well, a lot rests on how you define exploitation. And there's a, you know, a very expansive Marxist definition of that where all workers are exploited under capitalism. Are they particularly exploit? Uh, are musicians particularly exploited uh, by, by streaming services? Well, n- no more than they were, I would say, under the previous system. Uh, what we have is a superstar system, a winner-take-all system. That's probably diminished a little bit um, so in terms of equality, um, 
you know, I think there's some hope <laughs> under platforms. Platforms enable this set of rising demands and for people to be part of the same system. Um, and it, it, it might be more possible to have a discussion about about fair pay under the platform system than it was previously. Um, so that you know that that does give me some hope. But there's no doubt that what has also happened is that all the informal economy stuff, or lots of it, all the stuff that happens, you know, outside the the capitalist system, really. Um, is now increasingly incorporated into it and you know you have to be on a platform to have your music heard in a way that is somewhat parallel or analogous to to that uh you know the supermarket system that i was referring to earlier in my high point of high school marxism i organized all my lps by the corporations that released them <laughs> This took quite a while to do and quite a while to undo because I couldn't fucking find anything that I wanted to listen to. That's, so a, bit they, like, that's a bit like people who organise their bookshelves according to the colour of the books in order to make the room look nicer. And they can, ah, never, ah, they can never find the book. But yours, of course, had a, a much stronger critical edge to it. Oh, absolutely. As any 17-year-old in the mid-1970s could tell you. So you've got four minutes starting now. Uh, with a possible score of 10 on Jack. And remember that this is going to be the headline story of the podcast that brings in listeners from around the globe. So Blackburn Rovers are uh, a football team that um, were <laughs> historically very good and then they entered into a period of decline when I was young. And then in the 1990s, their fortunes were restored by um, a guy who ran uh, a big steel factory in the area who in, in, injected a, a, a lot of his money, which had been <laughs> earned on the back of, of, of the workers of East Lancashire, into the club. And then Blackburn Rovers won the premiership in 1995. Um, and then, cutting a long story short, they... Um, uh, uh, about 17 years later, got relegated. They've been taken over by this Indian company. And I think one of the things that's striking about when a w working class areas in the north of England, when their teams go into decline, is that it feels parallel to the decline of the area that they're in, these post-industrial mm. areas mm. that mm. Um, have suffered through the brutality of austerity, many of which voted uh, overwhelmingly for Brexit out of a tragic error of mistaking uh, one part of the capitalist system as being fully responsible for their suffering um, when there might actually have been some benefits to to those places of continued membership of, of the European Union. So, you know, I, 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 I see football uh, uh, as connected to some of those very sad stories about life, uh, not only in the north of England, but, you know, the north of England is a place where where there has been a particular destruction, erosion and destruction of the quality of of life in those towns. The cities are booming, but the towns 
are plummeting and I come up from a town called Accrington. It's five miles away from Blackburn. It has, actually has its own football team, but that football team barely existed when I was growing up. It had gone bankrupt in 1961, Accrington Stanley. Um, I've written about this. There's a piece in Open Democracy from 2016 uh, on Brexit and football that was written uh, the, the, the week after the, the, the Brexit referendum. And it was also the 100th anniversary that same week of the 1st of July 1916, which you will know, Toby, with your your deep understanding of history, was uh, the day that um, thousands of young men from East Lancashire went over the top of the trenches in the Battle of Somme and uh, were cut down. Um, hundreds and hundreds of people dead from, young men dead from one town. Imagine the effects that, that has on people. And that has a legacy, you know, that has a legacy. People think of Europe as this um, as this place that causes suffering if you come from a place like that in the north of England. So, you know, that that's behind the Brexit vote. Um, you know, it's not, it's, <laughs> it's an emotional response um, and it's bound up with things like football, which is why popular culture matters and why cultural studies matters. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Dave. There is both a tragedy, a a deep-seated trauma in what you're describing, but also an investment of hope in the popular, as variously described. It's been wonderful talking to you. And actually, I remember very frequently that cocktail bar in Clerkenwell where we sat and chatted. I'd completely forgotten that I was so involved in your parliamentary career. But I'll have a word to Niall about that in the future opportunities. <laughs> Life was better back in 2013, maybe. You know, we, we the cocktail bars, um, certain things hadn't happened. But we have to remember that austerity was being rained down on Absolutely. the yes, world. In, from, uh, in Britain from 2010, basically, there was the considered ruination of working life that has continued. And, well, and on that happy note... Of course, uh, they, across much of the world. Uh, I, 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 oh, absolutely. I really want, if I may, to extract the promise from you to return to the pod, perhaps with your collaborators, when you've concluded this r remarkable research project. Oh, thanks, Toby. I'd love to. And it's been such a pleasure talking to you, as always. <laughs>